All right, let's keep going with these book reviews. We're going to be talking about Prince Caspian and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader today. Number 11 on the list is Prince Caspian. And uh, I guess I would categorize this as kind of a return of the king's story. For me, I just picked up on these like strong eschatological kind of parousia tones. It's a return of kind of multiple kings and queens and Aslan. It's kind of all wrapped up in there. You have, you know, Prince Caspian reclaiming his rightful claim to the throne. You have the kings and queens of Susan and Lucy and Peter and Edmund coming back to Narnia. And then you have Aslan's kind of restoration of Narnia. Narnia is set in the future. It's the far future. While the Pevensies have only, they've been gone for about a year or something like that, Narnia has become this kind of disenchanted place, and it's ruled by King Miraz. Prince Caspian is told as a child about the history of kind of the glory days of Narnia when everything was still enchanted, and we have this exchange between Caspian and, and his uncle Miraz. He's talking about Narnia. He says, when everything was quite different, when all the animals could talk and there were nice people who lived in the streams and trees, naiads and dryads were called and there were dwarfs and there were lovely little fawns in all the woods. They had feet like goats and that's all nonsense for babies, said the king sternly. King Miraz goes on, there never were those kings and queens. How could there be two kings at the same time? And there's no such person as Aslan, and there are no such things as lions, and there never was a time when animals could talk, do you hear? So we, we enter the story with Caspian growing up in kind of this atheistic, naturalistic Narnia. But he's being told of the old days, the supernatural Narnia, by his nurse and then later on by his instructor, Dr. Cornelius, who is, is half dwarf, half human. So we have this basically tension set up by Lewis of the naturalistic and the, the supernaturalistic days of the past. Later, Dr. Cornelius informs Caspian that his uncle Miraz was a usurper of the crown. He says, everyone except your majesty knows that Miraz is a usurper. When he first began to rule, he did not even pretend to be king. He called himself Lord Protector. I can't help but think that Lewis is getting this from Oliver Cromwell's title during the English Civil War, where Cromwell was, was called Lord Protector. And perhaps Lewis's Anglicanism and his allegiance to the Church of England is showing through here. This isn't quite on the same level as Dante, who puts people that he doesn't like in hell. But I think that there is something of a slight going on here because Miraz is not a good character. And he's, there's possibly a comparison to Cromwell as also being a, a usurper of the English crown. There's this scene where Caspian, the badger truffle hunter, the dwarves Trumpkin and Nickabrick discover this cave with black dwarves. And the black dwarves say they will have Caspian as king if he is against Miraz. And then they offer to introduce Caspian to some ogres and a hag in order to ally with them. And we see this play out that the, there's certain dwarves that are very interested in just anybody who will ally themselves for power. And Caspian says, certainly not. And then the badger says, we want none of that sort on our side. And then the dwarf Nickabrick disagrees. And we'll come to him later. That This kind of manifests in another very important scene later on. And Truffle Hunter says, We should not have Aslan for friend if we brought in that rabble. And then Trumpkin kind of makes this disparaging remark of Aslan. And Caspian asks him, Do you believe in Aslan? To which Nickabrick replied, I'll believe in anyone or anything that'll batter these cursed Telmarine barbarians to pieces or drive them out of Narnia. Anyone or anything, Aslan or the White Witch, do you understand? 
Truffle Hunter replied, Silence, silence. You do not know what you are saying. She was a worse enemy than Miraz and all his race. Not to the dwarves, she wasn't, said Nickabrick. And so we see this kind of utilitarian approach to power that uh, Nickabrick and some of the dwarves are manifesting here. There's this other great scene where Caspian and his crew encounter a centaur and his three sons. They're kind of feeling out allies for the coming war against the Telmarines. And the father centaur is named Glenstorm, and he's described as a prophet. He already knows why Caspian is coming and found him, and he uh, says, Long live the king. I and my sons are ready for war. When is the battle to be joined? And up till now, neither Caspian nor the others had really been thinking of a war. They had some vague idea, perhaps of an occasional raid on some human farmstead or of attacking a party of hunters if it ventured too far into these southern wilds. But in the main, they had thought only of living to themselves in woods, in caves, and building up an attempt at Old Narnia in hiding. As soon as Glenstorm had spoken, everyone felt much more serious. Do you mean a real war to drive Miraz out of Narnia? asked Caspian. What else? said the centaur. Why else does your majesty go clad in mail and girt with a sword? <laughs> and I think this is just an incredible, whether Lewis is doing this or not, it's a great picture of the Christian life in general. We are given the armor of God in general, and this isn't just for minor skirmishes here and there. But also, it's a great picture of kind of eschatological differences between Christians, where Caspian kind of has in his mind this Benedict option of kind of holding up under the radar and then slowly trying to build back Narnia. And there's there's certain merits to that. But if I were to get adversarial, it, you would have postmillennialism on one side, which is the centaurs, and then you'd have everybody else, Caspian and what he was initially thinking on the other side, where they're not really serious about the war. They've resigned themselves to just kind of living in secret as a remnant. And there's not this idea that the church is going to take over the world, take over the nations, that kings are actually going to bow their knee to Christ in history, which has already happened and it will continue to happen. So anyway, I think that this is just, it's just a great picture here where I think the centaurs are post-millennialist <laughs> and Caspian kind of represents a pessimistic amillennialism or, or premillennialism. All right, there's this other uh, part where they have this battle. They choose where the battle is to be pitched, and they choose what's called Aslan's How, which is the place where Aslan sacrificed himself on the stone table. And that just kind of struck me as um, a smart strategic move that conservatives generally, conservative Christians don't often employ, like choosing how the battle is pitched, where the battle is pitched. And then I think this kind of a larger theological point that the foundation of our battles is Christ crucified and resurrected and that kind of victory attained there. There was a few thoughts that I kind of had with that. And if, you, if you're not fighting with that on that battleground, you're fighting a losing war. So, I mean, an example of this would be assuming modern assumptions about the world and then trying to argue without realizing you're buying into modern assumptions. That would be kind of an example of that. And, and also the battle at the how they got beat initially, then they win later. So that's another kind of interesting arc there, very Christian arc. So there's this horn that they blow to bring the kings and queens back into Narnia, Lucy, Edmund, Susan, and Peter. And when they come back, they're not what they expected, right? They're children. 
and they were expecting great warriors. And uh, Trumpkin, who discovers the children first, he's kind of trying to articulate this to him. And he says, as it is, we're awfully fond of children and all that, but just at the moment, in the middle of a war, but I'm sure you understand. <laughs> and this kind of makes me think of Psalm 8 too. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. At one point, the children and Trumpkin are looking to reconnect with Caspian and his army, and they're somewhat lost, and Lucy sees Aslan, and like she should, they should follow Aslan. But nobody believes that she saw Aslan, and it's kind of a powerful moment, like she's just kind of devastated, almost at the point of tears. And they go a different way instead. Then Lucy sees Aslan again while they're all sleeping. I think it's kind of a famous scene. I think it resonates with a lot of people. She speaks with Aslan, and it's just a fantastic exchange. Aslan basically instructs her that she should have followed him, even though the others weren't going to follow in that direction. She starts shifting the blame on the others, and Aslan gives a faint growl to get her to stop before she starts berating them or blaming them. And Lucy says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to start slinging the others, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looks straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you don't mean it was. How could I? I couldn't have left the others and come up to you alone. How could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could. Yes, and I wouldn't have been alone, I know, not if I was with you, but what would have been the good? Aslan said nothing. You mean, said Lucy rather faintly, that it would have turned out all right somehow? But how? Please, Aslan, am I not to know? So <laughs> it's like Aslan doesn't even say anything, and she's just kind of thinking out loud, knowing that she should have followed him even when nobody else came, which it's instructive. It's an instructive scene for the Christian life, that sometimes we need to follow Christ, when nobody else sees Christ in that direction, that can be a lonely walk, but we have to do it anyway. We follow Christ no matter what, even if nobody else is following. It's one of those principles that I think Christians affirm, but then when somebody actually does it, it's scandalizing to, to everyone. I know that's been the case in my own life, and if you've done the same thing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so Aslan then instructs Lucy to go wake the others up and, and to follow to follow him. And Lewis says this great, great passage. It is a terrible thing to have to wake four people, all older than yourself and all very tired, for the purpose of telling them something they probably won't believe and making them do something they certainly won't like. I mustn't think about it. I must just do it, thought Lucy. <laughs> just excellent. Really good stuff. Once Aslan is able to be seen by everyone, we see this gathering of of Narnian creatures come together and it's this feast celebration thing and they dance through the night and everyone becomes exhausted and they sit down and they look at Aslan for what he has to say to them next and then we read this at that moment the sun was just rising and Lucy remembered something and whispered to Susan I say Sue I know who they are who the boy with the wild face is Bacchus and the old one on the donkey is Selenus don't you remember Mr. Tumnus telling us about them long ago Yes, of course, but I say, Lou, what? I wouldn't have felt safe with Bacchus and all his wild girls if we'd met them without Aslan. I should think not, said Lucy. <laughs> Lewis is doing a risky thing here. Stuff like this is why some fundamentalist Christians denounce Lewis, and I, understandably so. I don't fault them for that, but he's doing this move here where if we understand Bacchus is the Roman god 
of the Greek god Dionysus. So the, the Romans appropriated Greek gods and made them their own. But Dionysus is the god of drinking and partying, basically. So there's kind of like pagan sinfulness, and they have a god of that. He's the god of wine. And uh, Silenus is his teacher and friend, and he's also kind of in that same category. And then the, there's a kind of cadre of women who are like ecstatic, and, and they follow. The, they're like his groupies. So it's certainly this risky thing that Lewis is doing, but I think what he's doing is he's basically making a comment that pagan celebration, which is excessive and sinful, but that what's going on there is corrected and harnessed under the dominion of Christ. Like Susan says, I wouldn't have been comfortable being here if Aslan wasn't here. I mean, I think it's kind of like Jesus at the wedding of Cana kind of type thing. There's some Christians that think that we shouldn't drink or dance or play cards or things like that. But Lewis certainly didn't think so. And I think this is partly his way of of saying that. It's more than that. I think he's getting at something deeper here. But also, I think Lewis is making the exact same point that Chesterton makes at the end of Orthodoxy. Chesterton says this, The outer ring of Christianity is a rigid guard of ethical abnegations and professional priests, but inside that human guard you will find the old human life dancing like children and drinking wine like men, for Christianity is the only frame for pagan freedom. But in the modern philosophy, the case is opposite. It is its outer ring that is obviously artistic and emancipated. Its despair is within. I think Lewis is playing with this idea. So anyway, it's interesting. But then the the best scene in this entire book is when Edmund and Peter and Trumpkin, they descend into this tunnel and they're going to meet Prince Caspian and they come to this room and they hear voices and they stop to listen. And basically they hear Nickabrick, the dwarf, trying to convince Truffle Hunter and Prince Caspian to ally with, there's this hag, there's a werewolf, and he's trying to enlist them in the battle against the Telmarines. And it's way too lengthy of a scene to quote extensively, but it is chilling. And it's just an incredible portrait of unbelief, giving up hope, and turning to these kind of fleshly, pragmatic plans to kind of attain your own salvation by making this Faustian deal, essentially. And we'll quote one terrifying bit from the werewolf when he's, uh, I think Truffle Hunter's like, hey, could you introduce yourself? And we read this, a dull gray voice at which Peter's flesh crept, replied, I'm hunger, I'm thirst, where I bite, I hold till I die. And even after death, they must cut out my mouthful from my enemy's body and bury it with me. I can fast a hundred years and not die. I can lie a hundred nights on the ice and not freeze. I can drink a river of blood and not burst. Show me your enemies. <laughs> you hear that and it's like, wow, that could be a formidable ally. And so we have these extensive arguments from Nicobrick basically saying the kings and queens of Narnia are not coming. And all the while, the kings and queens have arrived and the king, Edmund and Peter, are right outside the door listening to this apologetic of unbelief, essentially. And eventually the witch is about to initiate some black magic and they try to intervene and there's this scuffle and Peter and Edmund and Trumpkin, they dash in and kind of save the day and they kill all three. They kill the hag, they kill the werewolf, and they kill Nickabrick. What's interesting is that threefold aspect there of you have a, a woman, a beast, and a false prophet, the white witch, the werewolf, and Nickabrick. 
and they're destroyed by the return of the king. And so I can't help but think that this is kind of appropriating and and alluding to John's apocalypse. There's another point. uh, Peter just makes a remark about Aslan. We don't know when he will act in his time, no doubt, not ours. And so this idea is prominent throughout Prince Caspian. So I, I really really appreciate that. It's this is contrasted with Nicobrick, who has no patience for waiting. And Peter says, Aslan will come, but it'll be on his time and not our own. Okay, the Narnians eventually beat the Telmarines. There's this kind of showdown between Peter and King Miraz. And then there's this basically moment where his right-hand men, they yell treachery, they kill Miraz. And then all of Narnians descended kind of this war and the trees come and they destroy the Telmarines. And then Aslan comes and he starts to kind of transform Narnia under Miraz back to its kind of like fullness. He like re-enchants it. There's this part where they come to this school and we read, The sort of history that was taught in Narnia under Miraz's rule was duller than the truest history you ever read and less true than the most exciting adventure story. <laughs> Which I think this is Lewis making a slight towards modern education. This is just kind of an interesting kind of compare and contrast thing. You have the schoolgirls under Miraz's rule, and I can't help but think they're contrasted with Bacchus's fierce, madcap girls, is how Lewis describes them. Bacchus is with Aslan, kind of re-enchanting everything, and the Narnian girls are described as having their hair done very tight and ugly, having ugly tight collars around their necks and thick, tickly stockings on their legs, and I'm not quite sure what Lewis is doing here, except this kind of Dionysian, Apollonian dialectic, where the wild is contrasted with kind of the the uptight and the ordered. The wild is on the side of Aslan, and the uptight and ordered is under Miraz. And so there's just something interesting that Lewis is doing there. I'm not quite sure exactly. But in this kind of parousia of Aslan coming, this this coming of Aslan, where he's kind of writing all things, and he's, he's transforming the creation of Narnia. We see judgments on the wicked. We see there's a man beating a boy, and the man is turned into a tree. We have a group of boys where it's implied that they're turned into a, a bunch of pigs. And so, again, there's this dehumanization as a form of judgment that is is prevalent throughout the Chronicles. As an aside, I thought that the latest cinematic renditions of the Chronicles of Narnia were kind of hit or miss. I thought that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was definitely the best. Prince Caspian was terrible. And then the Voyage of the Dawn Treader was okay. The casting of Eustace was pretty good, but the Prince Caspian story deviated quite significantly from the actual story. But I think these are kind of hard to make into cinematic adaptations anyway. So number 10 is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is basically an odyssey. It's an adventure story. In some ways, I think it's about Reepicheep going home, if we consider Aslan's country his home, which that's how I would describe it. And then the other prominent mission is for Prince Caspian to fulfill this oath he made in his coronation to find these seven lost kings who traveled east and never returned. They're the seven lost kings of Narnia. My favorite things about this book are the character transformation of Eustace and the homecoming of Reepicheep. Eustace and Reepicheep are probably my, my favorite characters in the Chronicles of Narnia. All right, a few funny passages about Eustace. Just right off the bat, Lewis says, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. 
They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. (laughs) I suppose one of the advantages of writing novels, writing fiction, is you can make these kind of (laughs) passive-aggressive slights towards various groups of people. And it's really funny because Lewis lays it on thick with Eustace and his family. We're told Eustace didn't care about subjects for their own sake, only for getting good grades. Then there's this humorous scene where Eustace swings Reepicheep around by his tail. It's not very easy to draw one's sword when one is swinging around in the air by one's tail. But he did. Reepicheep challenges Eustace to a duel. Eustace replies, I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in fighting. Lewis goes on to say, Eustace, of course, was at a school where they didn't have corporal punishment. Like he parenthetically puts, of course, Eustace, of course, was at this kind of a school. Again, Lewis kind of making his pot shots at modern education and modernism in general. We're given snapshots of Eustace's journal where he is he's constantly complaining and he's making himself out to be the victim. The thought that came to mind when I'm reading this is that Eustace is Howard Zinn writing a people's history of the United States. If you know anything about that book, you know what I'm talking about. Eustace had a bad attitude the entire time. He's just a rotten kid. And Eustace is eventually turned into a dragon, which again, another dehumanizing punishment. This ultimately humbles him. And Eustace receives this kind of baptism from Aslan, where the old creature is torn off of him. It's a really great scene because Eustace keeps trying to take the, the, the dragon skin off of himself, and he's not able to do it before getting into this pool. But Aslan says that he has to take it off for him, right? He can't do it himself. And then Aslan does, and when he does, it hurts. Eustace describes it as like his claws digging into his heart. He's eventually freed from that form. He's kind of transformed back into a boy, and he's permitted to enter the water. And he tells Edmund what happened, and Edmund tells him that he saw Aslan. And then we read this. Aslan, said Eustace, I've heard that name mentioned several times since we joined the Dawn Treader, and I felt, I don't know what, I hated it. But I was hating everything then. And by the way, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been pretty beastly, (laughs) right? Like, Lewis is just constantly playing with this, what it means to be human and not human. That's all right, said Edmund. Between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia. You were only an ass, but I was a traitor. And I think Dante puts traitors in the, the lowest pit of hell. The treacherous, I think. But anyway, this is a great exchange between Eustace and Edmund, between, you know, two rotten boys who are transformed and humbled, and they become great boys becoming men. Eustace, we see, he, he goes on to become a fighter, and he, he exercises bravery. There's this giant sea serpent, and it attacks the ship, and he does his best to hack at it with a sword. He doesn't really do much, but he fought. He's no longer selfish. He's no longer a pacifist. So that's really good. There's this other scene where Lucy is looking through this magician's book and she sees that there's a spell that can make her basically give her this incredible beauty. And then she sees kind of what happens when that happens, (laughs) where it results in all these wars and envies and strife. And it reminded me 
it's very similar to what happens in Paralandra. It's been a long time since I read it, but the Satan figure puts up a mirror to the Eve figure's face and she's able to see herself, which is he's trying to kind of trigger the fall here in Paralandra. And I think there's something similar here that Lewis is playing with this kind of vanity and self-absorption, but somehow relating it to the fall or a fall of sorts. There's this other great scene where the Dawn Treader's in this hopeless place. It's in this like island of pitch black and it makes your nightmares come true and they're trying to get out and Lucy prays this small prayer to Aslan to save them and then we see this kind of small beam of light penetrate the darkness and something is described as it looks like a cross and then an airplane and then a kite and then an albatross and then the albatross perches on the front of the ship and then it flies away as if to guide the ship out of the darkness. And I think that Lewis might have been playing with or alluding to the poem by Samuel Coleridge called The Rhyme of the Mariner, which features an albatross. And the albatross is in kind of marine lore is a sign of blessing. But in the poem, it becomes this curse, this burden that he I think he has to wear it around his neck. But I think Lewis is playing with that, that the cross is this Christ become a curse for us, but it is also the blood, it is our salvation. And I think that that's probably what Lewis was was trying to connect these ideas there. We learn that in order to break the spell, to free the last of the lost kings, they're kind of on this island with this fallen star figure, and they have to sail to the end of the world. They got to keep going. And Rebacheep says that this is his heart's desire to go as far east into Aslan's country. And later on, when there's a discussion on how to go forward, Reepicheep says that he will go on no matter what happens. And he says this, and it's just a great, great passage. He says, My own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the Dawn Treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Just like really, <laughs> it's really powerful. And it's a fantastic passage that Lewis, again, is really good at kind of articulating our desire for heaven, our desire for God, figured by Aslan's country here, and Reepicheep's desire to return home. Really, really good passage there. There's so much good stuff I could say about the end of the book, but I'll, I'll keep it brief and just say that once the children encounter Aslan, he's in the form of a lamb, and it's at this kind of beach, field, end-of-the-world type of place in front of a fire, and he offers them fish for breakfast, which, to my mind, brings Jesus and Peter and their fish breakfast by the sea. I think Lewis probably is using this to kind of compare it to Lucy and Edmund, who are unable to return to Narnia, and I think that they're kind of commissioned into the world, into the real world, like Peter, Aslan says, You are too old, children, said Aslan, and you must begin to come close to your own world now. It isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. And notice when Edmund asks if Aslan is in our world, Aslan says, I am. And that he must learn to know him by a different name. That different name is I am. 
Uh, it's just a great scene. I, I think Lewis is intentionally writing it this way. And so that's just a really great exchange between the two and really kind of Lewis bridging that gap between Narnia and the real world in just a fantastic way. So I think this book is a lot of people's favorites, and it certainly ranks high on my list, too. We'll keep going. That's the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, but we'll break into the rest of the top ten in the next episode. Have a good one. Bye.